Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. So said the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas, 1947. Now, for many, death is the end, the closing of the curtain, the final, never-ending dark that follows the dawn. We open our eyes each and every morning to this illuminating light that brings clarity and definition to our world. It makes us aware of what's out there. It invites us to rise and to find our place in it. But then there's death, and death is the full stop. It's the, it's the blackness, it's the nothingness, it's the meaninglessness. And so some would agree with the words of Thomas's poem, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Fight, claw, resist, prolong with all your might that that final end, that final stop is prolonged as long as you possibly can make it. When we look out, we see just that, don't we? We see a world where vast amounts of money are being spent on things like medicine. We see people who are buying up uh, remedies and oils and, and elixirs. We, we, when a global pandemic hits, we even see people so concerned about their own health that they cut off even the closest relationships. But for the Christian, the one whose hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness, the horror of death, well, well it, it, it fades into the light of a brilliant and vivid reality that awaits them on the other side. To a grieving sister, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Yeah. To the church in Corinth, Paul wrote, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says that Christ's miraculous resurrection from the dead. In that same chapter, it's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so just like a farmer would take that, that first, there's first evidence of what the crop is going to look like, that juicy grape, and say, ah, it's going to be a good year. Christ's resurrection is that evidence that resurrection awaits each and every one of us who trust in him. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Paul wrote, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Friends, this is our great hope, is it not? <laughs> death swallowed up in victory, the victory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And that, that changes things, doesn't it? 
it, it, it changes everything. It, it, it changes the way we look at the things that, that we can buy and the things that we can sell. Do I, do I really want to spend all this time, all this energy, all this effort saving up to buy this or that that is, that is never really going to bring me any lasting joy or satisfaction? It's probably going to rust or, or, or tear or break or, or maybe even be taken away from me. It changes the way I look at, at work. And retirement. I mean, should I be doing all these things, spending all this time and all this effort so that I have a few good years of worry-free R&R? Or is there something better? Is there something more profound that I should be striving for? Is there a bigger and a better and a more lasting rest that I should be looking forward to? It changes the way we look at the world outside, doesn't it? The, the environment, the economy, our government, we don't ignore these things because we are in the world and, and matter matters, but neither do we find our hope in them. And we also don't allow them to rob us of where our hope is found. And it changes the way we look at birthdays and wrinkles, changing hair color. <laughs> Should I look at these things as bad omens of the good days slipping away, or should they be really exciting mile markers that tell me the finish line is ever closer? It, it, it changes the way we look at the time that we have left and what we should be doing with it. If, if it's eternity that I'm looking forward to, and this life truly is just a vapor, well, then how can I use my time right here, right now, to prepare myself for it and prepare others for it? It changes the way that we respond to people, doesn't it? Uh, people who try to intimidate us or threaten us or even want to take things away from us. And so with the psalmist, we say, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We say it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in, uh, um, in man. The Lord is my strength, my song. He's become my salvation. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the days of the Lord. And so, yes, it truly does impact the way we look at life and death. Paul wrote to the Philippians, for to me to live is Christ. What an amazing amazing fundamental change in his understanding of what this life is all about for me to live is christ and to die is gain if, I, if i'm to live in the flesh that means fruitful labor labor for me yet which shall i choose i cannot tell i'm hard pressed between the two my desire is to depart and be with christ which is far better and so what do I want to do here? What, what's better here? Do I keep on living and keep serving uh, Christ and his church here? That's great. But if I, if I go, if he calls me home, that's, that's better. I... In Christ, there's this invincible, life-giving, death-defying hope that belongs to those who have been filled with the Holy Spirit. In him, what others may look at it is just horrific and terrible. The end of ends, the failure of failures to Christians is known as death swallowed up in victory. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. What are you talking about? 
for us to live is Christ and to die, that's gain. And so, no, we don't have a death wish here. We're not, we're not, not uh, doing that. But it doesn't mean that we look, it does mean that we look at death and life in a completely different way than those who have no hope. Case in point, Stephen. The first of Christ's disciples to be killed in his name. Let's talk about Stephen. Stephen was arrested, brought before the highest Jewish council in the land for supposedly speaking against Moses, speaking against the law, speaking against the temple. And when he was given the opportunity to speak, he now courageously gives this history lesson to all who were within earshot. And he presents to them damning evidence that not he, but but it's actually his accusers that are guilty of resisting the Messiah, God's anointed one, the one who would be their people's savior. Whereas anyone in their right mind would have been filled with fear and anger at, at false accusations. We talked about that last week. Because he was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit, He courageously just speaks truth, and it puts on display God's glorious plan and directs his listeners to trust in in God, to trust in Jesus. How are the people going to respond? What's going to happen here? Are we on the edge of our seats? Wow, this is so compelling, what, what Stephen just laid out for them, what we talked about last week. Are they going to cry out to Jesus and say, we made a terrible mistake, forgive us? Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And when you think about it, how could they do anything else? At this point, how could they do anything else without completely incriminating themselves? When he first began to speak, they must have been intrigued, listening intently to see if this Greek-speaking Jew would botch up their precious history. But the more he went on, the clearer it became that this guy was actually turning the tables on them. And by the time we get to verse 51, there, this was an outright assault. Stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, resisting the Holy Spirit, traitors, murderers, that's what you're calling us? The Greek tells us that they were cut to the quick. Literally, it means they were sawn in half, meaning their insides were completely ripping apart. As Stephen took the veil off of their ugly, as he uncloaked their, their wretch, the wretched stench of their spirits and exposed them for the murderous hypocrites that they were, they completely lose it. And Luke writes that they began grinding gnashing their teeth at him. And that's what happens, doesn't it? When, when, when pure, unadulterated rage sets in, <laughs> that's what happens. Back muscles begin to tighten, and veins on the forehead begin to swell, and jaws lock, and teeth grind. And this is the way the Bible describes so very often the way it is for people who have set themselves in ferocious opposition against God. They don't just dislike him. 
they hate him. They cannot stand his purity and his brilliance and his majesty. They resent, resent the fact that he is good, that he's sovereign, and, and, and that they should even have the slightest uh, acknowledgement that he is the ruler over them. And that's what Revelation tells us, that that same attitude we see coming through for those who are going to endure the coming great tribulation. Chapter 16, Revelation chapter 16 says, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. What did they do? They cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent or give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. What did people do? People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for the, their pain and sores. They did not repent of their evil deeds. If we could look down to verse 17. Seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and with a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of his fury, of his wrath. Incredible things are happening like the world has never seen. It says, and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. What did they do? They cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. As judgment rains down from heaven, it does nothing to soften the abject hatred of the high king. Again and again and again, they continue to grind their teeth. You know, the same thing is going to be the, con the continuous state of those who find themselves locked in eternal judgment. It's going to be a place of torment, yes. It's going to be a place of endless weeping, to be sure. But it's also going to be a place where those who have rejected Jesus will be perpetually enraged at God and his people. And you don't have to take my word for it. Jesus. Yes, Jesus. The same Jesus that so many people in our day think is just, just, just about warm hugs and kisses. He said, the son of man, meaning himself, will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all the causes of sin and all the lawbreakers, throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The rage came bursting out of these witnesses, out of the council members against Stephen. And it was really just evidence of the, of the deep, dead darkness of hearts that have been turned away from God to serve that satanic impulse of self-worship. But you know, before we allow ourselves to get too disgusted here, we can't forget that that's exactly where every one of us was 
before coming to faith in Jesus. Let's not forget Paul's sobering words to the Corinthians. Don't you know that the unrighteousness, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the, the idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we go, whoa, those are harsh words there. And he says, and such were some of you. Such were some of us. In fact, even if these particular descriptions don't exactly fit us, we still belong there. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified, meaning set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. Stephen was washed. He had been justified. A guilty sinner declared innocent, yes? Rather than an enemy of God, he, like every other Christian, now was the dwelling place of God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit had taken up residence within him, and Luke describes him as being full of the Holy Spirit. And that means Stephen lived, and he, and he breathed, and every desire within him, he desired that, that God be directing that. God, lead my life. That is my prayer. Even in the moment where demonic violence comes exploding out of his listeners, he was being directed by God's rule, by God's reign. It says they ground their teeth in him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The contrast here is stark, isn't it? It is so stark. Those who are full of themselves, filled with these internal, fleshly, selfish desires, they're thrust into this incredible, uncontrollable frenzy. And at the same time, the one who is full of God's Holy Spirit, from the best we can tell, Perfect calm, focused on the one who he knew was in complete control. That parallels what, what Jesus said would, would happen. He said, when, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious. I struggle with being anxious. Do you? Do not be anxious. How you should defend yourself. For what you should say. For what? The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Calm, control, peace, trust, reliance on the Savior is what the Spirit produces in those who are full of Him and find themselves in the hairiest of situations. Do you find yourself freaking out? My wife can tell you, this week, Jared freaked out. <laughs> Flying off the handle. Unable to keep it together and represent Christ well in the hard moments of life. Those are the moments where we need to pray that the God of grace might fall upon us and have his spirit rule in our lives. I need 
you need. We, we all need to, we should be seeking to, praying to grow up into Christ-like maturity that his spirit might rule the day in here and in here. Amen? We need that. I want that. Let's desire this, church. Let's draw close together. Let's fill our minds with God's word. Let's plead that his spirit have free reign inside of these crazy hearts and crazy minds so that we might be an unshakable people. We're already a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? Let's be unshakable people. And we got to remind ourselves, Stephen, this guy's no superhero. He wasn't one of the 12 apostles, wasn't one of the elite. This guy is a, a table waiter. It wasn't on his own strength. It wasn't his super courage. It was simply that he's a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. And that's what led him to cast his cares on the one he knew cared so much for him. Let's help each other do the same. If you've been here at Bethany long, you've seen some of this. I've seen some of this. Those who have stared death and decay right in the face. And, and their, their bodies were breaking down. Their bones were, were rotting away. They know their, 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 the close of day, thank you, Thomas, was so close. And yet, they're filled with peace. It's been the most amazing thing, the most amazing spirit. Uh, experiences for me as a pastor have been there when I've been there with people so close to the end and there's peace and there's hope and there's joy. They know full well that their Savior is awaiting their arrival. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Well, it's swallowed up in the victory of Christ. Can we just land there? Corey, you want to just come up? <laughs> Let's take a closer look at this invincible, life-giving, death-defying hope that Stephen shows us. This is, he, he gazed. He gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing there at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. I'm not exactly sure how you do that. Earplugs maybe, and rushed together at him. As he looked upward, God gives him, and God get, actually gives us through him, this incredible glimpse of what lies ahead. Wouldn't you love to know what lies ahead? In fact, we, we have some experiences you can read about. People talk about this bright light. Some people talk about singing. Some people talk about you know, all, all these other things that they saw as they were right, right in the middle of life and death. But you know, right here is the most trustworthy picture that you and I can have of what awaits us on the other side. The heavens open up, and the Savior awaits our arrival. Stephen says that Jesus was standing. In so many other places in the New Testament, Jesus is described as sitting at the right hand of God, indicating most likely that his work is done. It's finished, our salvation. It's been bought, it's been paid for in full. But here in Acts, and in seven, he's standing. Why? Is that because of he's showing his concern for Stephen? 
is that because in, in the midst of all this corrupt courtroom drama, he, he, he's standing up, I'm the real witness that matters here. I'm, I'm the witness, and I approve of this man right here. Is that, that what's going on? Is it because he's just, he's just so enthralled and excited to see one of his pre- precious children faithfully confessing him before men so he stands up to acknowledge him and welcome him into heaven. I'm not exactly sure why he's standing here, but whatever the reason, it is good. (laughs) Oh, that our Savior might be standing, waiting to welcome us. And of course, the only reason we or anyone else knows that this is what Stephen saw, is because Stephen said it. Behold, I see, I see the heavens open. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Every one of his listeners immediately recognized that phrase that he used right there. Son of Man, oh, they knew exactly what that was. That was the same phrase Jesus used to refer to himself. Not long after, they crucified him for it. That was it. Too much. We're not taking any more. We can't, can't take any, any more. I imagine this, they're starting to twitch. They thought, the thought that this Jesus guy, who they had put to rest, we put to rest the Jesus thing, the thought that someone in their midst is now looking up and seeing that same Jesus standing in the presence, not just in the presence, at the right hand of the God that they claim to believe in, It's too much. That means we were wrong. That means someone who was cursed hanging on a cross as a filthy, rotten criminal has actually been exalted to the highest position in in all of existence that cannot be. And so like the demon-possessed herd of pigs frantically rushing down into the sea, these crazed accusers, hormao, that means they, they rushed toward this spirit-filled man. Then they cast him out of the city. And it says they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The description of all that goes down here, it, it, it doesn't sound like they were really worried about the technicalities. It doesn't really sound like they were worried about the legalities here. When, when Jesus was going to go to the cross, it seemed like they were trying to dot every I. we got to get him before the Roman council and all of this kind of stuff, making sure that we're doing this right. That doesn't seem to be a big concern here. You'll notice there that it says the witnesses laid down their garments. It, it, we're not familiar with... The, <laughs> This type of procedure, this doesn't happen in our towns these days, but according to Deuteronomy 17.7, the witnesses would be the ones who would be responsible for casting those first stones. They're the ones who would hopefully bring the death blow. And if they didn't finish the job with, with their stone throwing, well, then the rest of the community was invited to jump in. It's, it's, it's horrific in our minds today. Notice, notice what Stephen said again here. Just like Jesus, he offers up his spirit, doesn't he? And Jesus, of course, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's interesting. Stephen, on the other hand, knowing full well 
that Jesus is God and that Jesus is indeed his Savior, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We can see here's a man who's full of faith in Jesus. He knows what this is about. Verse 60 says, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now, if the crowd had not been completely baffled at, by this point, by Stephen's words and by his behavior, surely this would have been the most mind-boggling moment of them all. Well, they are completely overcome with hatred, bloodthirsty rage. The one receiving blow after blow manages to get out. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This doesn't even make sense. What human being desires mercy for his executioners? Even the prophet Zechariah, when he was being put to death in 2 Chronicles 24, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. <laughs> but here's Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, is led to exhale his last words to his Savior. And they're the same words that his Savior breathed. And as he did, he made it clear that his purpose, like Jesus' purpose, was not that the world might be condemned, no, no, but that through Christ it might be saved. What is your purpose in life and death? What's your purpose? What, what message will the world receive from our brief time on this planet? And whose life will be forever changed because of it? Now, I haven't really drawn any attention to it yet, but, but Saul, the, the pre-converted apostle Paul was standing there, and he's guarding the coats of the executioners. Luke writes in verse 1 of chapter 8 that he approved of this execution. This was, this was a good thing, Paul thought. This, is, this was right. Followers of Jesus, this Jesus guy, should be put to death. They're leading people astray, away from worshiping the one true God. All right, we need to do away with them. If you're familiar with Paul's story, you know what he would go on to do. Devote himself, to be the guy who would hunt down and destroy anyone who swore allegiance to Jesus. But you'll also know the dramatic turnaround, right? where he would miraculously be transformed from Christ-hater to Christ-proclaimer and church-builder. What, what, what kind of impact do you think that Stephen's final words had on this guy named Paul? What do, what do you think that Paul was referring to in 1 Timothy 1.15 when he, he wrote, I'm the foremost of sinners. Do you think those words, haunting words, ever stopped repeating in his mind? Those words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I don't think so. In fact, months from now, we're going to look at Acts 22.20. And we're going to read where Paul never forgot what happened that day. And he just spoke to the Roman tribune. He's on trial now. Everyone around in the barracks hears him 
remembering, recalling what happened that day. He still remembered standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed Stephen. It's likely that in Stephen's last sentence, that's where, that's where Paul first heard this, this whole mission of forgiveness. 1 Timothy 1.15, he, he later writes, the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And sinners would be saved. I believe in part because of Stephen's witness for Jesus Christ that came bursting out even as he was taking his dying breath. The good news of Jesus, it would go forth to the farthest reaches of the world. Augustine of Hippo, you're probably very, very familiar with this quote, uh, of course. Um, if, he said, if Stephen had not prayed, the church would not have had Paul. I don't know if I completely agree with that. I don't, I don't think that's entirely true. I believe God would have made it happen another way. Our, our disobedience, our immaturity, our faithless moments don't get in the way of God's plans. We know that. If we're faithless, he remains what? Faithful. But it does make me wonder, what God-glorifying chain of events might, like a, like a fusion reactor, explode into existence if we, even in our darkest death-ridden hour, let God's Spirit have full reign. As he entered his last moments, last moments of a brutal, horrific end, we don't even really want to think about this. We don't want to get into the details. No, 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 don't let our minds go there. The man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit had his sight set on the Savior, and to his last breath, continued to bear witness to the saving work which is offered freely to all. By, by all indications, we're led to believe that there was peace in the midst of pain, and hope in the midst of hate, and there was light in the midst of darkness and death. Luke says that Stephen fell asleep. I don't know of a more fitting way to describe the way that Christians pass out of this world. The lost world, they see nothing but, but death and, and dying and misery and all of that. Those who hope in Jesus see a victorious step into the Savior's presence. Where is your hope? Richard Baxter, he's a 17th century English pastor and theologian. He wrote out a prayer. I actually shared this prayer this past week with several different people that I know. And if you're one of them, you know. <laughs> As I think about life, I think about death, and I think about the new categorically better life that this man named Stephen is even right now, in 2022, our time, living. I can't, I can't help but be amazed at how perfect this prayer is for us who share that same hope. And I'd like to close by us just closing our eyes. Let's listen to the prayer of Richard Baxter and make it our own prayer as well. We bless your name, O oh Lord, as those that are redeemed from death and hell, 
is those who are advanced to the dignity of sons and daughters. As those whom you save from all their enemies, but especially from ourselves and our sins. We bless your name as those who are entering into glory and hope to be with Christ forever, where sin and sorrow, enemies and fears shall be shut out and shall molest our souls no more forever. We foresee by faith that happy day. We see by faith the new Jerusalem, the innumerable angels, the perfected spirits of the just, their glorious light, their flaming love, their perfect harmony. We hear by faith their joyful songs of thanks and praise. Lately they were as low and as sad as we, in sins and sorrows and manifold weaknesses, sufferings and fears. But by faith and patience they have overcome. And in faith and patience, we desire to follow our Lord and them. The time is near. This flesh will quickly turn to dust. And our delivered souls shall come to you. Our life is short and our sins and sorrows will be short. Amen. Then we shall have sight. We shall no more groan and cry out in darkness. Oh, that we could know the Lord. Then shall we love you with pure, unmixed, perfect love and need no more to groan and cry. Oh, that our souls were inflamed with your love. Then we shall praise you with thankful, cheerful readiness and joy, which will exceed our present apprehensions and desires. Oh, Lord, that is our prayer. Lord, may our perspective be the perspective of those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we might look at death and dying and decay and frustration and anxiety would melt away because what we see like Stephen would be our Savior. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, hope that is sufficient for the challenges and the and the horrors and the frustrations of this life. And we cast our cares on you, knowing you care for us, and we say, praise you, Lord Jesus. We long to be with you forever. But until that day, Lord, may we be faithful. May we love you. May we trust you. May we obey you. And may we draw close to each other that there is not a single one of us left behind. But may through us, may we together see Jesus Christ working powerfully and be drawn evermore to our Savior who awaits us. We love you. We thank you for this example of Stephen you've given us. And Lord, we are filled with joy. And we worship you now. In Jesus' name.